Hello and welcome to the RBC Broadview Campus Sermon Podcast. Our mission here is loving God, loving people and seeing lives change. At RBC, our heart is to build a Jesus-centered community to see lives changed in multiple languages and locations. We hope you enjoy this message from one of our weekend services. To find out more about us, please visit our website, rbc.org.au. Uh, so my name's Ashley. For those of you who I haven't met before, I'm married to Ben down here with the convertible. Um, I uh, did promise I, I haven't thrown you under the bus in this sermon. He, he's told me that every other sermon I've thrown him under the bus, but I haven't, so it's all good. Um, so today, before I get started, I actually need your help. I haven't finished my sermon yet, so I've got a few questions that I need you to help me fill in the blanks for. So the first question is, what's your dream car? Any, any ideas? What's your dream car? A driverless car? <laughs> Might be a little way off. Um, a horse and carriage. Wow. Any other dream cars? HK Monaro. Is that what you said? I have no idea what that is, but it sounds good. That's the one. All right. Now, I need... Um, a song, an idea for a song that really gets you in the mood for a party. What's a song that you hear and you just think, man, this is going to be a great night? <laughs> Any ideas? No, I need your help. Give me a song. Happy birthday. Happy birthday. Okay. <laughs> That's a good one. Um, Okay, last one, and I'll take a few ideas for this one as well. Um, If you only had one meal left to eat before you die, what would you eat? Tiramisu. Tiramisu? (laughs) (laughs) Any other ideas? Steak. Steak. That's a good one. KFC. KFC. (laughs) Love it. Any other ideas? A good curry. Lovely. All right. Thank you so much. My sermon's now finished and we're ready to go. All right. So, first of all, can you close your eyes? Now, I know you're probably thinking, I usually wait about five, ten minutes before I do this in the sermon, but I'm way ahead of you. Close your eyes and we're just going to imagine together. I'm going to read out a story to you and just see if you can picture it in your head. It's a Saturday night and you're getting ready to go to a party. But this just isn't any party, it's the party. The party of the decade, perhaps even the century. You were invited to this party a long time ago and you've waited and waited for this night to arrive and finally it's here. You and your family, you're getting ready in the house and there's a buzz of excitement that's electrifying the air. You've laid out your best dress or your finest suit, a splurge brought brand new just for this occasion. Running back and forth to each other, You ask, does this look okay? Are these shoes fancy enough? Does it all match? It's time to go, you hear someone call. So after the final few touches to your appearance, you gather your things and you head to the car. A HK Monara is waiting to take you to the party. And as it begins to make its way to the destination, you stare out of the window up to the night sky and the stars and you just know this is going to be the best night of your life. The car turns into the driveway of the biggest mansion you've ever seen with the most beautiful, immaculate gardens. 
and you hear the first strains of happy birthday drift towards you and you start to get your groove on. As your eye scans, you see an enormous exhibition of people, of faces, voices, ethnic groups and colours all coming to the party. You smile and wave at some of them, noticing that as you do, they all share your excited anticipation, your buzz, and you've never seen so many beaming smiles in your life. You walk up the grand staircase to the party's entrance, past the doorman who checks each name off the guest list, and you enter an elaborately decorated hall, as long and wide as 100 football fields put together, maybe more. Long tables aisled down the centre with the biggest smorgasbord of food, and you notice all your favourites there. Tiramisu, steak, KFC, a good curry, your heart leaps as you notice mainly carbs and absolutely no greens. Instantly, you're struck speechless because no words are adequate to describe the vision in front of you. This party you've waited what seems an eternity for is far beyond what you ever could have dreamed it would be. Best of all, there's no competition, no comparing one person to the other because you know that tonight you are among family. You are loved, you belong here. At first, this feeling deep inside you seems strange, but then you realise it is that every worry, every feeling of shame or guilt or depression has faded away to make way for pure, triumphant celebration. All right, open your eyes. What emotions did that imagination exercise stir in you? Well, in Jewish culture, a version of this story would have been passed down from generation to generation for centuries. A version of this story was told as they lived in a world like we do today, full of evil, sin and suffering, this story was used as a symbolic picture of the blessings of God to come, as those chosen by God would one day share in this rich feast in the presence of the Messiah. In scripture, they were told this future banquet would take place to suggest eternal satisfaction in the presence of God at his table. You see, meals were an important part of Jewish culture. Everything revolved around a meal, um, every kind of occasion, birthday, wedding, celebration, religious festivals, all centred around a meal. So the idea of having a feast to the Jewish uh, culture represented satisfaction, belonging, fun, celebration, pleasure. And so they were, they were taught that when God's redemptive work would be complete, when one day he would come to heal the world, to restore the world from evil and pain and suffering, earthly sin and sorrow would be drowned out by the sounds of this celebratory feast and the faithful would experience all the blessings that God's kingdom had to offer. It's pictured best in Isaiah 25 where it says, "'God of the angel armies will throw a feast "'for all the people of the world.'" A feast of the finest foods, a feast with vintage wines, a feast of seven courses, a feast lavish with gourmet desserts like tiramisu. And here on this mountain, God will banish the pall of doom hanging over all peoples, the shadow of doom darkening all nations, and he will banish death forever. And God will wipe tears from every face. He will remove every sign of disgrace from his people wherever they are. And the people will say, look what's happened. This is our God. We waited for him and he showed up and he saved us. This God is the one that we waited for and let's celebrate. This sentiment continued in Christians after Jesus' life, death and resurrection, often with great fervour. And as we heard from Dan last week, we know that Jesus' return is a sure thing. It's something we can count on and with it, the eternal glory in the presence of God. God. 
This is what we hope for, what we look forward to with great anticipation, excited for that grand celebration. Our Christian hope is rooted in this promise that God's goodness has and it will overcome evil for good and one day all things will be restored to his eternal glory. So why am I telling you this story? Well, today we're looking at a time where Jesus touched on a similar story, yet with a bit of a different twist than what was expected. So it's a Sabbath and Jesus was dining in the home of and with Pharisees who were the religious leaders at the time. They were very prominent people in Jewish culture. These people had likely heard this story countless times. They knew of the grand celebration, the grand feast waiting for them. So we're going to read in a minute from Luke 14, uh, chapter 14, verse 15 to 24. But just a bit of context before we get there, because this is only one part of the meal. There were some events that happened earlier. Um, So as I mentioned, mealtimes were very important gatherings. So Jesus had been invited to this um, meal with important people, Um, because meals also shed light on who was important, where you stood in society. In first century uh, Jewish culture, it was really a caste system. Everything revolved around who you knew, how important you were, what you had, um, where you really stood in the social hierarchy. So being invited to a meal like this was the first indicator of how important you were. The second indicator was where you sat at the table. The closer you sat to the host, the more important you were. So the places of honour were right near the host. Now, at this particular meal, as they all went to sit down, Jesus noticed everyone scrambling to try and get the places of honour at the table. And in true Jesus fashion, he didn't let that slide, he called them out on it um, and taught them a quick lesson on humility, on putting their pride and selfishness away um, and uh, basically saying the last will be first, that sort of thing. However, it wasn't having the desired effect. In fact, just after Jesus had said this, uh, one of them makes a toast. And we read in verse 15, it says, When one of those at the table with him heard this, he said to Jesus, Blessed is the one who will eat at the feast of the kingdom of God. Blessed is the one who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. See, what he was doing was he was really almost patting himself on the back saying, Look, I'm one of those people that's holy and good enough and important enough to eat at that kingdom feast with, with God at the end of time. Now, I think you can just imagine Jesus' internal sigh and eye roll when he's just taught this brilliant lesson with these beautiful analogies and someone's just completely missed the point. So Jesus decides to abandon being subtle and he really hits them with a hard truth as he shares this story. So we pick up in, uh, um, in verse 16, Luke chapter 4, verse 16. So Jesus replied, A certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who had been invited, come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said, I've just bought a field and I must go see it. Please excuse me. The other said, I've just bought five yoke of oxen and I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. And still another said, well, I just got married, so I can't come. The servant came back and reported this to his master. Then the owner of the house became angry and ordered his servant, go out quickly into the streets and the alleys of the town and bring in the poor and the crippled, the blind and the lame. Sir, the servant said, what you've ordered has been done, but there's still room. Then the master told his servant, well, go out to the roads and the country lanes and compel them to come in so that my house will be full. 
And note before I read this last line that Jesus switches here from singular to plural to make things really personal for those he's talking to. He ends with this. He says, I tell you, not one of those who were invited will get a taste of my banquet. Not one of those who were invited will get a taste of my banquet. Can you hear the pin drop with that last zinger? Can you feel the uncomfortable tension in the room? Can you smell the shame and conviction in the air? You see, Jesus was talking to a room full of people who are among the most important group or caste in their society, and who knew it as well. They knew they were up there on the social ranks, and they knew that they were always invited to these sorts of events. They were always at the top of the guest list. And then Jesus is basically saying to them, you think you're going to be at God's party? You think you're going to be at that celebration feast that you've heard about for years? You think it's enough just to accept the invitation? But you never showed up. To explain this story and the context a bit more, in a time without the ability to click going, not going, or maybe on a Facebook event, or RSVPing via text or email, RSVPs needed to be collected in person. So what the host would do, once he decided he was going to have a party, he would send out his servant to work his way down the guest list and knock on each door of each guest and say, my master's having a party, would you like to come? And then the guests needed to confirm right then and there whether they intended to come to the party. And this invitation was a little bit different in that the servant at that time wasn't able to tell the guest what time and what day the party would be. And that's because without the host knowing how many people were coming, he didn't know how much food to prepare. Uh, it's not as easy as just calling in some KFC or putting some party pies in the oven. They needed to actually kill all the animals, skin them, prepare them, cook them. Uh, and so, obviously, the more guests that came, the more animals they had to kill. So they didn't know how long it was going to take to prepare this feast. So firstly, all the guests would say, yes, I intend to come. The master would then know how much to cook. And then the, guests would do a, uh, the servant sorry, would do a second lap and say, the food's ready, come now. So the guests had no idea how long it was going to take. Was it going to be a few hours, a day, or more? They didn't know, but they needed to wait expectantly until the servant did his second lap. Now, no one in their right mind would dare miss such an event. Not only would the food be top-notch, but it was also an excellent opportunity to be seen with influential people and improve their own social standing. Not to come to a banquet when you'd already accepted that first invitation was a serious breach of social etiquette. And for a guest to go back on his RSVP once the feast had already been prepared, that's a really big insult to the host. But then for a whole series of guests, for everyone on your guest list to reject your final invitation, that's just social devastation for the host. It would have seemed like there was a big conspiracy against this host by all his guests to bring public shame on him and def defamation. So when Jesus is telling this story, the hard truth that he's hitting home to these Pharisees listening is that they are the ones who are the original guests. They are the ones who think they're coming to the party but don't show up. They are the ones who have rejected the invitation of the host, who is God, as they give their excuses to the servant, who is Jesus. Today, in light of our current series with its uh, provocative title, Not a Fan, I want us to focus on why Jesus was telling this story. 
what the impact of this illustration was for his direct audience and what the impact remains for us today. The intent of this series uh, is to challenge us. It's been challenging so far, hasn't it? It's to challenge us to examine our posture towards and our participation in God's kingdom, calling us not to just be fans of Jesus, but to be followers of Jesus. And to explain that concept a bit more, I like to think of it as a footy stadium. So in a footy stadium, you've really got two main groups of people, right? You've got the players and you've got the fans. Now, the fans can sit comfortably in their seats uh, and they don't really have to do much effort. You know, they get to have some hot chips, they get to you know, chat to one another, whatever. Um, and they pay a lot of lip service, they cheer on. Um, that's probably the most effort they put into it, is the cheering. Um, and they definitely, if someone is not up to scratch, if the players, the coach, the umpire are not up to scratch, you'll hear about it from the fans, right? So they talk a lot, they, they pay a lot of lip service. But really, it's the players on the field that are putting in the hard yards, right? They're the ones putting in their sweat, their physical energy, their mental and emotional energy. And as we've definitely discovered this year, the truth is the game can go on without the fans there. The game can continue without the fans there, right? So in this story, the Pharisees were like those fans. It's what they were doing. They were paying a lot of lip service to portray themselves as pious fans of God, as people who, um, you know, spoke as if, yes, I am a follower of God, I am part of God's nation, I am holy, I am important. But when it came to actually following and doing and going and being part of the action, they came up with excuses. Now, I don't want to focus too much on the excuses themselves, but just point out that they're pretty shallow, right? The first and second excuses, I think we can all agree, it's pretty ridiculous to only examine something like a piece of land or um, your stock um, to see what it's worth after you've purchased it. You know, usually it makes sense to do that before you've purchased it. So that's a pretty lame excuse. For the third excuse, we all know what that guest really means. He just got married, he can't come. And let's be honest, who hasn't blamed something on their partner before, not going somewhere on their partner before? Overall, the excuses really just fall flat in justifying why the guest couldn't come to the party, why they couldn't heed the servant's call to follow. You know, we humans, we're pretty good at making poor excuses. Just look at our current COVID situation. I was reading an article yesterday about the situation in Victoria, and we know that um, you know, Victoria is going through a pretty harsh lockdown at the moment and unfortunately a lot of people haven't been doing the right thing. Um, but I was reading this article which um, shared some of the excuses that people had given for breaching some of the regulations. So first of all, there was a guy who was out at 2.30 in the morning. Now they have a curfew overnight, so they're not meant to be out overnight. The police found him out at 2.30 in the morning, asked him why he was out and he said he was on his way to feed his brother's horse. I don't know about you, but I don't know many horses that eat at 2.30 in the morning. The next one was, uh, there was a man who wasn't wearing a mask because he had a bad pimple on his chin. You would think he'd just want to cover that up, but no. Uh, and then the last one was a surfer who travelled more than 140 kilometres, and remember they've got a five kilometre radius. Um, so he travelled more than 140 kilometres from his home just because there were no waves on the east side. So we're pretty good at making some pretty lame excuses, right? But I wonder, in the lame excuses of the original guests, 
Do you hear some of your own shallow excuses for not following Jesus? Do you hear some of your own excuses for not doing God's will? I know I do. It's easy for us to make excuses like, you know, I don't have time and too busy in the morning to spend time with God and then I'm too tired from work in the evening. Or, you know, I don't want to hold up my family so I won't go talk to that person God's prompting me to talk to today. Or I'll just, I'll just get this partying or this, this drinking or this sleeping around or this thing out of my system and then once that's out of my system, then I'll focus on God once I'm ready to settle down. Take a moment to ask yourself, what excuses stand between you and God? What excuses stand in the way of you following Jesus? You see, excuses are really just a shallow way of saying that's not a priority for me right now. We may be able to convince ourselves that what we're doing is noble or necessary, but I'm afraid that way too often our excuses are just an insult to God. Just as the host was insulted at the rejection of his original guest, God is insulted when we excuse ourselves from following him, from communion and from relationship with him. We feel badly when we're rejected, but what about our father? Think of his grief and his broken heart and his anger. See, excuses are a window to our priorities. With our excuses, we're telling God, you know, God, you're not at the top of my priority list right now. You're not the most attractive option right now, but I might get to you later, once I'm done or once I'm ready or in my own time. Worse still is when we profess, when we pay, pay that lip service, we profess to be a follower of Christ, when really we're just that fan. We're nominating as Christian, we're attending church just to tick our God box for the week but then doing whatever we want in the meantime. C.S. Lewis said this, he said, I find when I think I'm asking God to forgive me, I am often in reality asking him not to forgive me, but to excuse me. But with our excuses, we're not fooling God, we're only fooling ourselves. We fool ourselves into thinking it's okay just to accept God's invitation, but not show up when Jesus calls us to follow him. We fool ourselves into thinking that our destructive behaviour is okay when really it's damaging us and those around us. We fool ourselves out of the joy that a relationship with God can bring. We fool ourselves out of the blessings that are to come, out of our inheritance as a child of God. We fool ourselves out of experiencing the richness that a life with God is and will be. You see, a life following Jesus is not going to be our most attractive offer on earth. It's not. There's always going to be things that seem more attractive and we're actually promised that a life with Jesus is going to include hardship and suffering. However, while following Jesus is not our most attractive offer on earth, it is our most attractive offer for eternity. It is our hope for eternity. So let's not excuse ourselves from communion with the Father. Let's be prepared that when Jesus calls, not to give excuses, but to immediately follow him. So what does it look like to follow through on your commitment to Christ? And what excuses stand between you and God? Or what are you prioritizing above following Jesus? The good news for us is this. Despite our rejection of him, God continues to extend an invitation of mercy and grace to us. Jesus' parable here reveals more to us than simply the attitudes of the guests who didn't come. 
It shows us the heart of the host and the heart of our Father God. Instead of wallowing in self-pity that none of his guests showed up, the host's desire to fellowship with others leads him to direct his servant to seek out new guests. We read in verse 21, the servant came back, reported to his master that none of the guests were coming. And so what did the master do? He said, go out quickly into the streets and the alleys of the town and bring in the poor and the, line, uh, the blind and the lame and the crippled. And I love here that the servant already had anticipated that this is what his master would ask for. He knew that this was the kind of master he served in the heart of his master. And he said, I've already done that. What you've ordered has already been done, but there's still room. And so the master says, go out to the roads, the countrysides, go even further and compel them to come in. Compel them to come in so that my house will be full. The word used here, the Greek word used here means to compel or to force or to strongly urge or invite or press. You see, the host didn't send his servant just to sweep the area, gather up whoever would come in. He actually said, no, go, make an effort to seek out people to come. Urge them, compel them. He didn't say don't take no for an answer, but he said encourage them as much as you can because I want them here. This part of Jesus' story was the twist that the Pharisees didn't expect. That the ones who were actually going to attend the party in the end were the ones that they would usually never dare invite to their gatherings. They were the ones who didn't belong, who were the lowest down on the social hierarchy, who weren't welcome. In a world that says that you are unworthy, in a world that says that you are unwanted, that you are broken, that you are not good enough, God says, I want you here. I want to fellowship with you. I want to be with you. You are loved. You are welcome at my table. You belong and you are wanted here. In this moment, that point would have hit home all the more because of an incident earlier in the day. Like I said earlier, this wasn't the first thing that happened that day. When Jesus arrived, he was actually confronted by a man who suffered from abnormal swelling of his body. And long story short, he was actually just a setup by the Pharisees. The Pharisees had put this man in front of Jesus uh, to see, as a trap really, to see what he would do if he would heal the man on a Sabbath, which was um, considered unlawful. So they were trying to set Jesus up. And Jesus, of course, heals the man and challenges their thinking on that. But now, Jesus is telling them that that very man who they used in a prop, as a prop in a scheme, that very man who wasn't meant to be at their table, who they cast aside, that very man is the one who will be sitting at the table with Jesus. That very man is the one who will be sitting with God and experiencing the richness and the fullness of his presence. You see, God's grace and mercy extends far beyond our human-made limitations. In Jesus, every single person has the hope of redemption. None of us are worthy. There's nothing we can do to earn our place. It's not about who you know or where you stand in society, how righteous you are, how good a person you are, how many rules you follow. No, it's only by God's grace and mercy that the invitation is extended to us. Yeah. The rejection that Jesus as a servant would have felt is nothing compared to the joy and satisfaction of seeing those that he sought after, given their worth before God. God's grace and mercy is culminated by the servant Jesus dying on the cross for us, in our place, for our sin and our shame. He has done the work, and it's only by God's grace and mercy that we have a seat at the table.
So have you truly accepted the invitation? Are you prepared? Are you ready to go when Jesus calls you to follow? Jesus asks us to live in eager anticipation of his call to come and be ready to go follow him. He asks us to live expecting that second knock on the door, expecting that he will call us to immediately stop what we're doing and follow where he leads. His invitation to us is the most important request to tend to in our lives, no matter how seemingly inconvenient and ill-timed it may appear. Our plans should never take precedence over God's more important, urgent and greater plan for our lives. A big-hearted saviour died for us. The same big-hearted God who welcomes you now. God's invitation to enter his kingdom and sit at his banquet table is granted by sheer grace, a grace he doesn't owe any of us. Tim Keller sums it up when he says this, Jesus offers us unimaginable splendour that requires our utter surrender. Throughout the life of Jesus, we repeatedly see him saying, come, follow me, come, follow me. And with these words, he calls us and invites us to experience abundant life and joy and blessing with him. We look forward again in Revelation 3:20. It says, "Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come to him, and I will dine with him and he with me." Do you want to be a follower of Christ? Do you want to live in that beautiful communion with God? Well, there is a cost. You do have to make him first in your life. And when he calls you, there are no excuses. He wants obedience. He wants us to come and follow. So let us set our hope on Christ's return and God's restoration of all things for good. Let's not excuse ourselves from communion with God, but let us live in the great anticipation of Jesus' call, of Jesus' knock, and be ready to follow him. Let us remember that it's only by God's mercy and grace, which extends far beyond our human-made limitations, that we are welcomed to God's table. In a moment, we're going to take communion, so if the um, stewards could come and help hand those out now. Because a little while after Jesus shared this story at the table of, of the Pharisees, he sat at another table, a table with his disciples, And we read that Jesus and his disciples were reclining at the table and he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds its fulfillment in the kingdom of God. And after taking the cup, he gave thanks and he said, Take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. So Jesus here is he's speaking, he's looking forward to that great banquet to come, that time where God's redemptive work is complete and he will restore all things for good. He will, he will provide healing and he will wipe every tear. He will take away every feeling of shame and disgrace. Jesus is looking forward here to that day. And he takes the bread, he gave thanks and he broke it and he gave it to his disciples saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which was poured out for you. Jesus invited his disciples and he invites us today 
to join him in this meal. The Lord's table is open today and it's welcome to you today. As we eat this meal together, we know it's a joyful remembrance as we think of the sacrificial love of Jesus the servant. In taking the bread, we are committing to leave behind sin in the world, leave behind our excuses, and we express our repentance. We repent of those lame, shallow excuses we use to reject God and his will. And in taking the cup, we are recommitting that we will hear, we will listen for the call of Jesus to follow him. We re-express our commitment, that initial commitment to live a new life in Christ and be prepared and ready to go when he calls. And we anticipate with great hope that day, just as Jesus did, when we will feast with him in the kingdom of God. So as we take communion this morning, I'll ask you a few questions and just take a moment to stop and reflect. What is your response to God's merciful invitation? Take a moment to express your thanks for our servant Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. What excuses stand between you and God today? Confess them before him now. Repent before him now. How is Jesus calling you to follow him? Ask him, Lord, how are you calling me to follow you? And let's commit to him now. And as we eat and drink together now, Let's do so in the anticipation of that day when we will feast in the kingdom of God, experiencing the full richness of our Father's goodness and blessings. Let's eat and drink together. Lord, we thank you. We thank you for seeking out us. We thank you that despite the times when we reject you, when we don't listen for your call, we thank you, God, for continuing to extend your hand of grace and mercy towards us. Lord, today we confess our disobedience. We confess our rejection. We confess the times when we do not prioritise you and your will. Lord, we are sorry. But we thank you again for your sacrifice on the cross for us, Jesus. We thank you that you were the great servant who put your life on the line for us, for our sin and shame. 
So Lord, now we, we choose to hear your call. Lord, show us where you want us to go. Lead us, Lord. And this morning, we commit to following you. you know, perhaps you're here this morning and this is one of the first times that you have heard this message, heard this call. I just pray now that, Lord, you hear those hearts who cry out to you for the first time. Lord, I pray that you will meet those hearts where they are at the moment. Lord, I pray that you will reveal yourself so powerfully in our lives today. Lord, I pray that you'll give us the strength, the diligence, the obedience, the persistence to continue to follow you, to make that choice each day to walk after you. And Lord, we look forward to that day when you wipe every tear from every eye. We look forward to that day when you restore all things for your good. We look forward to that day, Lord, with great hope where we experience the richness and the fullness of your blessings and your presence, Lord. We thank you for this great hope that you've given us. We pray in the name of your servant, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thanks for listening and we hope that you enjoyed this podcast. If this message has impacted you in some way, we would love to hear from you. You can contact us through The Hub online at thehub.rbc.org.au or through our social media links in the show notes. See you next time.